quick disclaimer, there is some human sacrifice this week, and dog sacrifice, just a lot of violence, not expl- just a lot of sacrifice. No, the violence is not detailed, but it is there. Check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, we're wrapping up our current dive into the Popo Vol. We'll see how eating your vegetables might help you if you get your head cut off, and how, if that new sold-out magic show murders people on stage, maybe pass. The creature this week is a hairy naked man who tickles people in the forest, a phrase that's becoming way too common on this podcast. This is Myths and Legends, episode 320B, The Boys. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Previously on the podcast, the beginning of the world happened, and it did not go well. After a few prototypes of humans, primordial gods went back to the drawing board. Meanwhile, two brothers, both named Hunapu, were inconsiderate neighbors, and had to be called down to Shibalba, the underworld, to play ball with the Lords of Death. That also did not go well. They were beheaded. As happens, exactly once in any mythology, this time, the skull of one of the brothers spat on a woman named Blood Moon, and she became pregnant, giving birth to the hero twins Shibalanke and Hunapu. They lived with their mom and grandma on Earth, and they killed the seven Macaw, the bird who claimed to be better than the sun. Life pro tip, if the sun exists and is sentient, don't anger it, or do. The sun didn't step up, but Chibalanke and Hunapu sure did. Like I said, they killed the seven Macaw and started their hero's journey. But just as they got started, they learned some shocking news. Zapakna, the earth alligator, killed the 400 boys. Hey there, Zippy, Shibalanke cried out to the giant alligator, sniffing around for crabs to eat. Don't call me that, Zipakna said back. Then they all heard his stomach rumble. Hey, he had been looking for crabs for days, and he was starving. Hunapu pointed, oh, they were actually just attacked by a giant crab down in the canyon. Zipakna shook his head, wait, what? Shibalanke rubbed his shoulder, yeah, got pretty intense. She's a tough one. They could see Zipakna's mouth watering. All right, yeah, he was taking the bait. Show me, show me now. Why'd you tell him he had to shimmy in on his back? Shibalanke asked Hunapu. As the twins watched an alligator kicking off the dirt deep in the canyon, Hunapu shrugged. He thought it was funny and it put him in a more vulnerable position. You don't think that particular religious groups in the future could interpret this as a lustful event and all that implies? Hunapu laughed. Based on what? Two lines? You'd really have to be looking for that. Shibalanke shrugged. Well, whatever happened in the future, he hoped this worked. When the mountain, the one that the shell painted to look like a crab held up, came down, the twins could see that, yes, the trap worked. They did not make the same mistake as the 400 boys getting drunk and waiting for ants to go after Zipakna's rotting remains, and made their way to the site of the trap. 
turned to stone, just like I thought. Shibalanke brushed the dust from his hands. No, you didn't, Hunapu retorted. Yes, I did. Okay, well, in the future, you can't call stuff without actually calling it. You have to say, the mountain will fall on him and turn him to stone. Hunapu shook his head. And how did he turn to stone? How did we manage to rig up a mountain as a trap? Story doesn't say, bro. Story doesn't say. Shibalanke took one last look at Zapakna, and the pair strode from the foothills that were once a canyon. So, uh, heard you kids were into killing arrogant, godlike beings, Hurricane said from an alleyway, wearing a trench coat and glasses as the hero twins passed by. He also invented alleyways, trench coats, and glasses for this particular bit. Shibalanke looked left and right. Who, uh, who wants to know? A fan, Hurricane said, handing him a card that had the hurricane symbol from weather reports on it. Come with me, Hurricane told the boys. I am the breaker of mountains, Kabrakan, the earthquake god, said. The twins and Hurricane, joined by some of the other primordial gods, watched Kabrakan, yes, turn a mountain to gravel with a kick. Just like his dad and brother, he's growing too big. He's going to surpass the sun in size and weight. It shouldn't be that way. This guy has to go, Hurricane finished briefing the boys. The boys looked at each other and nodded. They were in. And a few days later, they were back. He was dead. The gods couldn't quite believe what they were hearing. Dead. Already. Shibalanke and Hunapu confirmed. Yep, it was really easy, actually. They walked around Earthquake, claiming to be orphans hunting birds, which, I mean, they were. Anyway, they talked up a mountain really far in the east beyond the wasteland that Kabrakan himself had made, because he loved smashing up mountains so much. Anyway, they invited him to sit down and eat at their camp, and fed him a bird covered in dirt. Plaster, Shibalanke corrected. Hunapu nodded, yeah, some sources say plaster. And Kabrakan died from exhaustion and hunger on the way to the giant mountain in the east. That was it? The gods still couldn't quite process this. That was it. The twins smiled. What? It's not like he's some perpetual energy machine. He needed to eat. He thought he ate. And by the time he realized he hadn't eaten, he was too far away from any food. Hey, so transitions... Grandma said to the hero twins when they finally returned home from their adventures. She mentioned how, you know, last episode they mentioned that they were the replacements for one monkey and one artisan before those two were turned into monkey gods. <laughs> she chuckled a little bit when she thought about it. Anyway, uh, yeah, she needed them to garden. Say no more, the hero twins gathered up their axes and blow darts, all necessary gardening items, and left for the fields. In the fields, the twins recruited someone to help them keep watch. You let us know when Grandma comes out with our food. Shibalanke pointed to the morning dove. The dove said, uh, chirp, chirp, yeah, no problem, but didn't you tell her you'd be gardening, chirp, chirp? Hunapu did a Kratos throw with the axe. 
leveling a forest in the process. Shibalanke threw his mattock, and it tore up the ground and cleared the trees, cultivating it. They planted the items, and the next day, it was back to normal. The twins thought that was weird. Okay, they did it again, and again, it was back to normal. That night, they decided to stay out, watching the fields to see who was thwarting their gardening. It was still very early in prehistory, and the guys before them just invented agriculture, so they could be forgiven for not realizing that you need to keep the animals out. The animals, jaguars, puma, deer, foxes, rabbits, it was just a fun animal hangout. And at the end of it, just a mess with the twins, they spoke... Arise, conjoin, you trees. Arise, conjoin, you bushes. And the field filled back in. The hero twins knew these guys had to die. Also, quick aside, I'm not sure if they are the same animals created the first time around, the last episode, that the gods made to praise them, but I'm choosing to believe that animals can speak perfect human languages. They just don't want to. They don't know us that. Sentient and speaking or no, the hero twins weren't having any of it. They sprung from the tree line and went after the animals. But the animals were ready. They had been warned by the gods that the people were going to be out hunting them. They had been training for this. In the end, the hero twins only caught one, the rat. And the rat, despite the connotation of the name, wasn't talking. Even after he lost his big, beautiful, fluffy tail when the boys held it over the fire, and burned off the hair like Mesoamerican mythological Jack Bowers, giving all rats from there on out hairless tails. I will not die by your hand, the rat declared. The hero twins were impressed. Even they couldn't match his intense energy. Gardening is not your profession, your calling. There is something else. People have taken something of yours, and I know how to get it back, the rat sneered. The boys looked to each other. This rat could play hardball. My release and a morsel of food, the rat named his terms. The boys agreed. I know the location of your father's sporting goods equipment. The boys gasped. The rat continued. Their kilts, their wrist guards, their rubber ball. The rat grinned. Yes. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. That you're missing your father's sporting goods equipment. It was still in Shibalba, the underworld. They hid it in the attic of the house they stayed in there, tucked it up in the rafters. The gods of death still hadn't found the equipment, and it rankled them. The boys rose. Up, up, up. The rat raised a claw about his compensation. The boys gestured to the field. The rat smiled. Oh, no, no, no. Corn kernels, squash seeds, chili beans, batashte cacao, these belonged to the rats. Anything that the twins or anyone else stored or was thrown away, which meant literally everything that wasn't being used at any given moment, that was what could be gnawed on by the rat. The boys, not really caring about the implication of giving all rats, for all time, implicit permission to hassle every living thing forever, said sure, whatever. They had bigger fish to fry, and frying wasn't even a thing yet. We're going back to the underworld for way too many ball games, but that will be right after this. 
One death gritted his teeth when he heard the noise. Like me from college, he never really got over noisy neighbors. It had been years. Years without balls crashing up there, people running. They had to kill someone to make it happen, two someones. One death and seven death knew who it was. It was the child of Blood Moon, the grandchild of Blood Gatherer. The young woman had left that day, and he always wondered what became of her. Now, it seemed like her child was up there, playing a ball game and being just as annoying as their dad seriously what was up with this family. He penned a message and sent it to the world above. So, you were sent by the lords of Shibalba, Hunapu looked the hawk over. The hawk said, no, not exactly. You see, they sent a creepy shadow dude who talked to your grandma. She told a louse to come get you. It was too slow, so it was eaten by a frog. The frog was eaten by a snake. After I ate the snake, I had the sudden urge to tell you that there's a game down in Shibalba in seven days, and you and your brother are invited. Little known fact, if you eat an animal, you also inherit their to-do list. Shibalanke said, that wasn't true. Don't act like Mayan mythology said that sort of thing, but a ball game in Shibalba. Their mother had told them had told them how their fathers died, and also that their fathers were massive jerks for spitting on a girl and getting her pregnant. I mean, seriously, who does that? All the same, this was the answer to the challenge the rat had posed for them. Get their father's sporting goods equipment back. They had conquered the world of monsters. Now, it was time to conquer the monster of their past. The grandmother told the boys when they came home that they didn't need to do this. Let the past stay buried, stay dead. And why were they digging up the center of her house? The answer was, of course, corn. It was sort of like a status indication as to whether or not her grandchildren were dead. If the corn lived, the twins lived. If it died, they were dead. The most stressful houseplant ever. So they said goodbye to their grieving mother and grandmother and descended to the underworld, Shibalba. It said that they crossed the River of Pus and the River of Blood. No mention of Scorpion Rapids this time. Probably ran out of scorpions. Before they made it to the wooden mannequins, though, they had a contact they needed to meet up with. A spy. By all of them? The mosquito said. Shibalanke likely had to resist the urge to swat the mosquito, buzzing around his ear. What's in it for me? The insect asked. Travelers. All the travelers. Shibalanke nodded. Anyone out on the road, the mosquito could bite. He had their permission. They just needed the names of the residents of Shibalba. And yeah, if Mosquito was able to bring them back the names of the beings of the underworld, mosquitoes would be able to plague all of us forever by biting. So, you know, thank Shibalanke and Hunapu for that this summer. The mosquito spy popped the collar of his own tiny trench coat and buzzed off for the underworld. That was. Ridiculously easy, the mosquito said on his return. He bit the first one. He said, ow. The second said, what was it, one death? The mosquito bit the second, and he said, ow. The third said, what was it, seven death? And so on and so forth, down through blood gatherer, demon of pus, and the rest. 
They added bloody teeth and bloody claws since the last time. So, you know, at 11 beans, they can now field a soccer team. Mosquito got their payment of annoying us all forever, and the boys descended into the underworld. They easily bypassed the mannequins, the mosquitoes gave them a heads up about that, and they caught the lords of death off guard when they greeted everyone by name. One death worried that he might have underestimated the kids. And this was all but confirmed when, offering them a seat on a hot stove, they said no. That's not a bench, that's a stove. The lords of death narrowed their eyes. They could see the twins had played benchy stovey before. All right, bedtime. Game was tomorrow. Here was the house they would be staying in. They were given torches and cigars, like their dads had been given, with the same orders to keep them lit, but to not use them at all. When the Lords of Death saw embers glowing in the dark house, they could rest assured that they could safely, and justifiably, behead these children the following day. So, they were nonplussed when, the next morning, the kids brought out the torches and cigars completely intact, unburnt, unused. They didn't know that Shibalanka and Hunapu always kept something of a flashlight on them. Instead of smoking the cigar, they peppered the end with jewels taken from the head of Seven Macaw, the bird that had glowed with the light of the sun. The torch was fireflies they were, I guess, on good terms with. They didn't need to make any promises with the fireflies like they did with the mosquito spy. Fireflies are just chill like that. The next morning, Shibalanka and Hunapu emerged to the Lords of Death doing stretches and some warm-up calisthenics. Matching tracksuits and sweatbands, it was a whole look. They walked up to the boys, and one death presented the rubber ball. Hunapu looked down. That wasn't a rubber ball. It's a skull. One death shook his head. No, it wasn't. Look at it bounce. He threw the ball down to the grass, and it thudded there. It didn't budge, because it was, in fact, a skull. What's that rattling around in it? Chibalanke asked. Hunapu picked up the ball that was, in fact, a skull. It's a knife? Chibalanke pulled out the knife hidden in the ball that, once again, was a skull. What? What is that doing there? So glad you found that, One Death said, taking the knife and asking a lot of his now-soaked headband. Someone could have gotten hurt, the Lords of Death chuckled. Yeah, Shibalanke and Hunapu grimaced. Anyway, they had brought their own rubber ball. It belonged to their fathers. The Lords of Death gasped when the boys pulled the ball from their back. The night before, in the light of the fireflies, they had found it hidden in the attic of the dark house. Ostensibly, according to the text, the sporting goods were the ultimate reason for the murders of the Hunapus, and the equipment had been right under their noses in Shibalba the whole time. This was where the twins got to make it right. The murders of their fathers. This ball, this game, it was their birthright. They played for their lives, and they lost. By a lot. Wow, Shibalanke said to Hunapu, as they did the good game high five line. Did not see that coming. Hey, at least it wasn't for our lives though, right? Hunapu shrugged. Turned out the Lords of Death only wanted a few bowls of flowers. That was the deal if they won. Shibalanke said, yes, but the flower fields were under heavy guard and they would be killed the next morning if they didn't bring the flowers, so... And also, look where we're staying tonight, 
Chibalanke pointed up to the House of Razors. Like Scorpion Rapids, House of Razors is exactly what it says on the tin. It was a house filled with razors. The floor was razors. The walls were razors. There were cute little razor birds that flew around and tried to cut you. Probably. Its rating on TripAdvisor was subpar. Blood Gatherer was outside rubbing his palms together. Gonna gather so much blood tonight. But when hours passed and there were neither screams nor blood, he was confused. You see, as we've touched on, Shibalanke and Hunapu had something of a power. Not sure if the primordial gods designated this ability to them, or if it fell to them by default or what, but they had the ability to make decisions about how everything related to everything else, now and forever. And knives? Knives had needs. That was a weird way to put that, but yeah, they wanted to cut stuff. Earlier on in the night, the twins had smiled. How about animals? The knives cocked their knifey eyebrows. They were listening. The twins said, yeah, look, cooking, hunting, killing, they could cut all the animals they wanted, now and forever. All they had to do was let the twins survive the night. So we've been hearing about these things that the gods have cooking up. People, we think they'll be called? The knives were trying to drive a hard bargain. The twins said, no dice. Knives couldn't cut people. That was, at best, assault with a deadly weapon. At worst, murder. Animals, though, there were so many of them. And, I mean, killing a deer? That's like killing a beautiful man. How many 90s Simpsons quotes are you going to do in these episodes? The knives asked. That's probably the last one, Shibalanke said. How about it, though? We have a deal? Sure, yeah, deal. Shake on it, the knife negotiator said. The twins started to extend their hands, but then pointed at the knife. Ah, had to try. <laughs> You're good kids, the lead razor yelled and ordered the rest to flatten out and give the twins a floor. The flowers were easy. The boys could talk to ants and hire them to go steal the flowers of Shibalba. The lords of death were speechless the following day when the boys not only walked out of the razor house, but did so holding the bundles of flowers. The game that day began, and it went better. The boys were learning, and it came to a draw. There was no task, and they could stay in the cold house until the game the following morning. In a montage of murdery ball games, followed by even more dangerous hotel accommodations, over the following days, the twins stayed in the cold house, they weathered it, the jaguar house, they gave the jaguars bone toys to play with, and they did because they're still cats, the firehouse, no idea how they survived a house that was, quote, only fire inside, but they did. And finally, they had to face the bat house. Snatch bats are, as far as I can tell, not a name of a real-life bat. And that's good, because snatch bats have razor snouts. And, according to a late classic Mayan vase, their wings have the images of eyeballs, with the optic nerve just kind of dangling there. Shrink! Shrink, shrink, Shibalanka yelled to Hunapu. Hunapu watched his brother shrink. Wait, since when can they change size? Uh, since always, Shibalanka said, in an increasingly Alvin and the Chipmunks style voice. He had tossed out his blowgun before he shrank. Just think about shrinking, Shibalanka yelled at the top of his lungs. Hunapu could barely hear him. Hunapu thought about it and 
shrank. He walked up to his brother. Inside the blowgun. What in the world? Never thought about shrinking before, huh? Shubalanke nodded. It showed. The brothers didn't have a grand plan for this one. Kemazots, the giant bat god, couldn't be reasoned with. He didn't want anything other than death, and he could kill even them with a single swipe. It wasn't a night when they'd beat it. They would only outlast it. And they did. They could hear the bat above, flapping in the shadows with wings made of darkness. It moved so fast, not even the hero twins could see it. I'm gonna take a closer look. Hunapu walked to the edge of the blowgun. Don't do it, he is too fast, Shibalanke warned. Relax, Hunapu told his brother as he peeked out the edge of the blowgun. I'll be fine. Shibalanke heard a thud. What happened? Hunapu, did, did you see the bat? Shibalanke felt his way over to the opening and his foot caught on something soft. Shibalanke tripped and the hand that hit the ground came up wet and sticky. He called for his brother, but Hunapu didn't call back to him because Hunapu had been beheaded in an instant by Kemetsots, the bat god. He was dead. Yeah, Batman here is not messing around. He totally kills people. We'll see the aftermath, but that will, once again, be right after this. One death and seven death laughed at the forlorn Shibalanke as he walked onto the ball field the following day. Oh, down a man, huh? Well... Since they didn't have Shibalanke's father's sweet sporting goods equipment, they would have to settle for this. They pulled out their new ball, which was the severed head of Hunapu. What do you think of that? The Shibalbans cackled. I don't know. What do we think of that, Hunapu? Hunapu walked forward and looked on his own severed head. Eh, not as good as my new one, he high-fived his brother. The Lords of Death looked at the kid. Um, how was he alive and with a head and alive? Well, in the morning, after Kemetzatz had left with the head, but before the guard had come for him, Shibalanke did his go-to, where he summoned the animals. His brother needed a new head. So the animals brought their food, some stone, some earth, a gourd, and they made a head for Hunapu. The heart of the sky even popped down to carve it, so it looked real nice. The Lords of Death said that couldn't possibly be what happened, right? Shibalanke and Veggie Hunapu nodded. Yeah, it was. It was like Fern from Adventure Time, but this one made sense. Hunapu did get his head back that day. Since they were playing with it as a ball, it wasn't long before a rabbit stole it for him. He put it back on, and he and his brother won the final game against the Shibalbans. The animals celebrated with the twins, but fled as the Shibalbans closed in around them. Good game, good game. Hey, they were all gonna have a cookout to celebrate the game and the twins winning. Didn't that sound fun? 
eating with guys named Demon of Pus and Scab Stripper? The twins smiled. Yeah, you know what? It did. It was over. They had survived the game, all the trials, despite one of the twins actually losing a head, but still, both of the twins knew it would never end. The animals. They had come with messages from the seers, friends that the boys apparently had in Shibalba. The boys had survived the games and the houses, but they were fated to die here, and there's no contradicting fate. Even for two young men who wrestled with monsters the gods themselves wouldn't face, they would die in this place. So that's why they sent a message to the seers who had aided them. They accepted what must be done and went to the cookout. There are tragic ways this can go down. There are clever ploys. And then there are oven jumping competitions. Yeah, so... If someone invites you over for dinner, and the first thing they do is excitedly wait for you to jump over a pit of fire, it should come as no surprise that they are actively trying to murder you. I mean, especially if they just spent the last week actually trying to kill you, and already cut off your head once. The brothers held hands, took a deep breath, and leapt. And the crowd went wild. One death and seven deaths smiled at each other. They couldn't believe that worked. What? Seriously, they beat the House of Razors but couldn't even jump an oven? Okay, next time they were trying that from the jump. Ha, jump. Hey, Sears, get over here and when this cools down, dispose of the ashes and bones and all that. I don't care where, I just don't want their femur spitting on any girls or whatever. Two weeks later, Seven Death skidded into the room. They're in town. <gasps> the catfish guys? One Death shot up. Seven Death nodded. Oh, yeah. They've been touring Shibalba for the last week. Nobody knew where they came from, but they were two men with catfish faces. Who cares where they came from? One Death gathered together the others. They do sword swallowing, the dance of the weasel, the dance of the poor will, the armadillo dance, walking on stilts. The Demon of Woe said one death was kind of excited about the wrong parts of their show. They would burn down a house and bring it back. They kill each other, like brutally on stage, and bring the other back to life. Then, two figures darkened the doorway. One death looked to seven death. No! Seven death smiled. Yep, private show, bud. Happy birthday. One death said it was his birthday? I don't think we have them. Seven Death gestured to the vagabonds, dressed in rags with the faces of catfish. He told the two men to start the show, but first, introduce themselves. The two fish men said that they never knew their parents, or where they came from. In truth, they were afraid. Scab Stripper, Blood Gatherer, the Deaths, and the others said, Aw, that's cute. No reason to be afraid. They just wanted to see the show that was the number one hit of Shibalba the underworld. They wanted the men to do the sacrificial dance and maybe burn down their house. You know, fun stuff. 
And they did it. They did the weasel dance, the armadillo dance. They did the stilts. There was a rhythm to the show. And soon, like most magic shows, the guests were screaming out for the performers to kill their dogs. Yeah, it's it's dark, but the dogs were okay after experiencing being sacrificed and then brought back to life with all those memories. The story says that they wag their tails, though, which can also be a sign of anxiety. Anyway, the performers burned down the house around all of them and then brought it all back in an instant. But the Lords of Death were still itching for that grand finale. Sacrifice! 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 Usually, when a group of people are screaming for a sacrifice, it's scary and bad. This was a fun time, though. The two vagabonds had a human assistant come out, and they straight up murdered him. On stage. The crowd, the Lords of Death, sat with bated breath. Watching a dude murdered? Even if the vagabonds couldn't bring him back to life, this was still very much their vibe. But they did bring him back to life. <gasps> now do you too, Seven Death yelled out. And they did. One of the vagabonds killed the other and brought him back. Then the traveler killed the one who killed him and brought him back. Do me next. One death cried. The crowd went wild. This was amazing. Oh, then me, Seven Death called. After you bring him back, kill me and bring me back. The two vagabonds agreed. And One Death and Seven Death laid down to have their hearts taken out of their body. Seven Death watched. It was gory and wonderful. He saw the vagabond standing there, one death's heart in their hands, and then he noticed something. He recognized these men. The catfish faces were only a disguise. These were... (gasps) The twins, he shrieked, his voice not making it over the din of the crowd. The twins, Hunapu and Shibalanke, lived. Hunapu smiled and leaned over, pinning seven death to the table, while Shibalanke stabbed the heart of one death and tossed it aside. The room grew silent. This wasn't part of the act. The screams of seven death persisted for a few moments longer, until he too was silenced by the knife. The rest of the Lords of Death submitted after the twins took their vengeance for the skull-spit dad. The hero twins had done it. They had avenged their fathers. The other Lords of Death begged the twins for clemency, and the twins granted it. But not without conditions. The Lords of Death, the ones that attacked others violently and whose worship was still practiced among the humans, the Lords of Death would diminish. They would no longer get sacrifices and worship. Their offerings would be just the broken things of the world, stuff that they would gather themselves. They would never be great again. Just to be clear, this represents the break between a violent time where people killed each other and wanted conflict to a time of civilization and peace, right? That's what's going on here? One of the Lords of Death asked. The twins said yes, that was the subtext. That Shibalba and thus violence and death would no longer be worshipped in the world. They would not have power, and a new day would dawn above.
The twins stood at the place of the ball game. It had been the location of their own trials, and it was now the grave of their fathers. Their fathers. People they had never met. They exhumed Seven Hunapu's body. They could do that now. They could bring him back. They didn't know where one Hunapu's head was, so that made resurrection for him a bit more difficult. But they laid out Seven Hunapu's body parts, worked their magic, and his eyes opened. He couldn't move. His body didn't reconnect, or if it did, it was too far gone to move. He looked up at his sons. He was only eyes, a nose, and a mouth, essentially, and he smiled. His boys. They told him his death no longer need dishonor him. They had cleared it. His loss, his pain, Seven Hunapu breathed. He would be the first to have his days kept among those born above, born in the light. They were called humans. They had been fashioned by the gods from corn, who finally got it right. Most importantly, they told their father, your suffering has ended. Your name will not be lost. Shibalanke and Hunapu sat a long time with their father. The story says they comforted his heart as he finally passed on in peace. The twins buried him anew. This place would be the place of ball game sacrifice to honor the people who had prepared a way for humans. Both the twins knew. They knew that it was their time. Not like when they did the oven jump when they had unfinished business. There would be no seers to dump them in a river so they could emerge as vagabonds now. They had played their part. They had lived their story. The world above had moved on as it should. There wasn't growth without change, without loss. They had done what they could so the humans could flourish. The twins, the brothers, Shibalanke and Hunapu, took each other's hands and ascended. They became the sun and the moon, joining the 400 boys, the stars of the sky, so they could always look on the world. Shimukane, on Earth, had been weeping for weeks. The corn plants, the ones the boys had planted so their grandmother could see if they were still alive, had withered, had died. Weeks ago, the grandmother had tossed the plants out into a field. She and Blood Moon were inconsolable. They had each other, but after the twins, their world would never be the same. And they were right. Now, a light warmed and illuminated the sky in the morning, and at dusk, another glowed gently, guiding travelers. But that light also warmed the soil, the soil where the corn had fallen, dead, and it began to sprout anew, nourished by this thing the people were calling the sun. The mother and grandmother looked out one day and saw a field of green, and they knew, Somehow, they knew that their boys had done a wonderful thing, that somewhere they lived, looking after all. They looked to the sky with a smile and went to harvest. (music) 
So there were parts of the story that were a challenge, maybe because these are grand mythologies and pretty abstract. That being said, the ending, despite coming at the close of a murdery magic show, was moving. The boys did what they needed to avenge their fathers, they got to speak to him for their first and last time, and then they ascended to a place where they could help the world, a world that had changed without them. We're about at an episode length, and that was a satisfying end to the narrative that we had followed up to this point, but if you want me to go into the Mayan creation of the actual humans, we totally can. Just let me know. Links in the show notes. Next week, it's back into Viking lore, with an obsessed morning king, vicious foot massages, and magic burps. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a whole raw alligator you can buy on Amazon for some reason, you can get bonus and ad-free episodes. That will not give you salmonella. Not saying a dead alligator that's been mailed to you will, but the episodes definitely won't. Check out mythpodcast.com membership or find it in Apple Podcasts to subscribe there. The creature this week is the Obda, from the folklore of the Mari, a Finnic people chiefly living in Mariel. So, for whatever reason, there is more than one hairy, naked creature that lives in the forest and tickles people. It's troubling that this is something that appears to transcend cultures and borders. It means that, throughout human history, there have at least been enough hairy, naked men tickling people in the forest for legends to sprout up about them. This one, the Obda, does not tickle people to death. He'll just find you when you're sleeping in the forest and tickle your feet until you wake up and then make you dance to death. So that's positive. It knows your name. So if you hear a strange voice calling your name into the dark forest, what are you even doing? Why, why would you do that? Don't follow. If you get captured though, do not fight back. It's like a hydra, but worse, because any drops of blood that fall from the obda make another obda. Your only hope is jamming something into the massive armpit holes the monster apparently has. This will drain it of energy, mainly because... Mainly because you just made things weird. The Obda are not dog people. I mean, not literally, of course, but also they're scared of them. Additionally, they don't like an old-fashioned Mari belt. I wasn't able to find what that looked like. Interestingly, Obda in the Mari language apparently means mammoth and mammoths are hairy and naked. So maybe all this is just a case of mistaken identity, and there's an actual mammoth family out there trying to wake people up so they don't oversleep. And the only way to do so is with their tickly trunk. And people just keep sicking the hounds on them or trying to jam their hands into their armpits. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more of the music we use in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.